0: Welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. Odds are that you're currently listening to this episode inside of a city. We've recently moved to the point where more than half of the world's population lives in cities, and urbanization is one of the largest macro trends on Earth. This month we're going to explore the role and importance of cities and how they will play a key piece of the transition to a more sustainable energy system. We're going to talk to some senior representatives from the United Nations on city policy and how intelligent policy can have a true impact at the city level. We're also going to talk to some dear friends from future Cape Town about some really interesting initiatives going on in that jewel of a South African city. We're also going to take a time to talk to a bicycle engineer from the city of Calgary who's going to explore some of the tangible problems and opportunities that come when you try to experience transportation mode shift in a city changing behaviors is one of the most difficult things that we try to do as human beings and jason's experience and stories paint a fascinating case study of the trials and tribulations and benefits of working around some truly innovative solutions to city-specific challenges we're going to finish the show off with an interview with the green building council of the united states the green building council are the lead certification body in the world and have been responsible for some of the most ambitious efficiency improvements in the built environment on earth. Without further ado, we're going to kick off this month's episode of Energy Voices with our recurring segment on This Month in Energy from Student Energy co-founder Kaylee Taylor.
1: Hey there, Enter nerds it's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and this is This Month in Energy, the segment of the show where I take you through the most current happenings in the world of energy. So here's what's happening this month. After more than six years of negotiations, the global aviation industry agreed to the first binding limits on carbon dioxide emissions. The deal is the latest in a series of international efforts to address climate change. Until now, airplanes had not been included in any international climate change deals, like the recent Paris Agreement. Canada, the United States and Mexico have signed a trilateral agreement that makes important strides towards a continental approach to energy and expands the three countries relationship in support of an ambitious clean energy environmental agreement. This marks the first step towards a green NAFTA. In his final budget, President Obama asked Congress to double investment in clean energy research and development to $12.8 billion by 2021. Unfortunately, Republican leaders in Congress have already said that they don't plan to help enact Obama's budget plan. The first auction for the electricity sector in Mexico will be held on March 31st and has already been oversubscribed 15 times the capacity of electricity and clean energy certificates in its initial solicitation. China's new installed wind capacity reached 30.5 gigawatts in 2015, representing a significant growth of 31.5% from the previous year. The increase was due mainly to a new policy that will be lowering the country's feed-in tariffs for wind power in 2016. Work has begun on the world's biggest floating solar farm in Japan. Space-starved Japan began building floating solar farms in an effort to increase renewable energy in the wake of the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. The power plant will supply enough electricity for nearly 5,000 households when it's completed in early 2018. The New Deal on Energy for Africa was launched at Davos during the World Economic Forum. The plan aims to unite the private sector and local governments on energy capacity building projects to achieve universal energy access in Africa by 2025. The New Deal has four major goals for electricity expansion add 160 gigawatts of on-grid generation, create 130 million new on-grid connections, increase off-grid generation to add 75 million connections, and increase access to clean cooking energy for around 130 million households. Meanwhile, in East Africa, Kenya has nearly doubled its electricity exports to Tanzania and Uganda thanks to increased geothermal power generation. The European Commission has presented a package of energy security measures aimed at strengthening the EU's resilience to energy supply interruptions, especially gasless supply disruptions. Some of the proposed measures are decreasing energy demand, expanding renewables, and diversifying energy sources, suppliers, and routes. Indian mobile services provider Bari Airtel Limited has announced the migration of 40,000 of its telecom towers to operate on battery hybrid, lithium ion and solar hybrid technologies. The company is committed to reducing carbon emissions by 70% in 2018. After the EU sanctions on Iran were lifted in January, Iran has started exporting oil to Europe once again. On February 14th, it delivered the first 4 million barrels of oil to companies in France, Spain, and Russia. Iran plans to rebuild its relations with Europe, which used to be its number one trading partner on energy, before the sanctions were imposed. France announced that it will pave a thousand kilometers of road with photovoltaic panels in the next five years. Once the project is completed, the new roadways will be able to supply electricity to five million people, or about 8% of the French population. And that's all for this month in energy.
0: Next up is an interview with Future Cape Town by Kaylee Taylor, Student Energy co-founder.
1: I'm joined in the studio today by Rashik Fatar, the founder and director of Future Cape Town. Not only is Rashik a very good personal friend of mine, but he's also a huge champion for urban sustainable development. We met originally at the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit in 2012, and we've both kind of simultaneously watched our individual movements grow, and so I'm so excited to have you in the studio today. Thanks for being here, Rasheek.
2: It's a pleasure, Kaylee.
1: So tell me a little bit about yourself and about Future Cape Town, or I know, maybe tell our listeners about that.
2: Uh, Great. I'm an urbanist. I'm passionate about cities and uh, even more passionate about the public, uh, being able to be part of any discussions or plans or visions for cities. In any way that they can, whether it be social media or, or meetings or workshops. Uh, and I felt that after Cape Town hosted the FIFA World Cup, that not many people could comment on uh, infrastructure plans. Not many people were even aware of the, sort of the buildings going up, the designs. Um, they didn't feel like they had a had a say, and the dialogue and debate was very narrow. You know, among sort of really. Uh, wealthy resource residents rather than being some big city visioning process, uh, so future Cape Town formed in social media just as a Twitter account as a side project uh, sharing information and it 's growing today just to be an independent nonprofit and we promote democracy and dialogue about the future urban design and development of our city, um, mainly using uh, social media and our website and then through research and consulting as well.
1: Great, and I noticed on your website it had grown to more than just Cape Town.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we former team members felt obviously very passionate once they finished their time working with us. They had gone back to, uh, well, to Lagos, so we have future Lagos, uh, which is currently uh, contributing to the website in terms of what's happening in the city, what are the major issues, and uh, at the moment working on an interesting collaboration around public space. And uh, we have uh, sometimes writers in London and Johannesburg who uh, want to use our platform to, to get their voice out there, but at the same time to raise uh, issues. Often young people can feel very disconnected from the issues and the future of their city. And um, sometimes they feel that a, a project like uh, future Johannesburg just helps make them sort of feel a bit closer to, to what's going on.
1: Great. And so is your target mostly youth or do you also engage with kind of all demographics?
2: I think the organization only really formalized, I think, possibly only uh, after we met in Rio. I I believe in 2013 was the first year where I decided to work on the project full time. Um, So that was uh, interesting in the sense that we were just happy that we had you know 10,000 Twitter followers and uh, at that point decided to make it a a non-profit organization. Um, so I would say our demographic has always been younger just because of the platforms of the, the website and social media and uh, in 2015 we decided to just now create programs to focus on younger people so we have a program called Young Urbanists which um, looks at people under the age of 40 and we do a number of field trips and events, film nights, uh, talks and tours, uh, just to uh, bridge the divide between these different professions and make, you know, whether you're in finance or in in architecture, you you feel like you can be a part of the happenings of the city and meet interesting other people. Um, But I think our aim is to be for everyone. Uh, Whoever wants to follow us on social media, stay up to date so we have uh, people of all ages, um, you know, knowing about Feature Ketan and following the platforms.
1: Great, so one of the things that I think is so interesting about urban design is it can have an impact not only on sustainability, which is I think where student energy tends to focus a little more, but also on society's social fabric and the way communities develop and interact. So how do you see the social, environmental and economic dimensions of society being influenced by the design of cities?
2: Uh, Well, we have a very unique context in our city, in Cape Town and, and cities like Johannesburg. Um, just for a bit of history, you know, for 300 years, uh, South African cities would have designed to divide people up by race, so to segregate the cities by race. So, in fact, it was a very good design project in the sense that it was achieved, and, you know, our city still sits with the legacy of, of having, you know, deep social and economic divisions. So urban design must play an ever bigger role on the social sustainability. I think we've seen in cities around the world where, there's good, let's say, design and architecture there. Uh, there could be outbreaks and, and protests and, um, and and riots, even in cities in, in uh, Europe, whether it be uh, a city like London, where we saw youth protests just a few years ago. So I think design can have a big impact, but it must also impact on social sustainability. Um, how do people feel a part of the community? We've seen the crisis, crisis around the world um, uh, playing out currently. And um, I think the urban design influences those dimensions as much as those dimensions influence urban design. So obviously the, the economics and s- the society of the time could dictate whether people have access to study design or to become designers. And uh, if the designers are of a particular uh, sort of uh, type of person, then your city is going to be really influenced by that small group of people. Um, but I think the the social fabric is becoming uh, so much more important um, as it is in our city where basic issues like safety and uh, access to public spaces can be can be very important um, and it also just you know developing the identity and and brands of communities uh, urban design really thinks about the spaces between public transport between where you work be, uh, where you live as well um, and the uh, you know you hope over time that the economics and the environment respond to better urban design thinking.
1: Great. And what role do you see uh, citizens having in shaping their cities? I guess, I guess this is kind of what you do, but how do you see that role um, changing and, and developing?
2: I think it's, it's developed around the world. Um, what we previously thought were very, very advanced and developed democracies have also seen citizen movements sort of rising. Um, they're absolutely important. Uh, If cities are to be democracies they have to be shaped by people. Um, Unfortunately the cost of that in different countries and cities you know it varies so you know how easy is it in a country or city to to change the design of a public space? Um, What are the government and political implications of of, you know being advocates for change? I think we've seen the the consequences of that whether it be um, the attacks on journalists or um, the attacks on the media. So, uh, citizens have uh, important roles to play, but of course there's such a big gap between the role they're allowed to play and can play and the conditions under which they shape their cities. We were very surprised by, you know, Helsinki where we assumed had, you know, deeply democratic processes because it's, you know, in a particular region of of countries and cities. But uh, young people felt that they should make their own city plan. Um, because they weren 't being heard because they felt that the decisions being made weren 't in the best long term interest of the city, um, so I think the more citizens we have shaping cities around the world, the more you inspire others and um, and ultimately uh, it 's this uh, mixture of of public private citizen government um, you know, collectives and nonprofits that are asking new questions of cities and you know, have, have the means and the resources to really make cities sustainable. Um, the more people you have excited about the city, the the more energy and resources you have ultimately to make it a better place.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I think you've given us a completely different lens on the importance of cities uh, for this episode. And I'm always, I'm just always just so happy to talk to you. So thanks for being here, Rishik.
2: Thanks for having me, Katie.
0: Today on Energy Voices, we're talking to Stefanos Fochu, who's the Director of Environment and Development Division of the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, so the UNESCAP. Stefano also previously held the role of the United Nations Environment Program Cities and Lifestyles Unit, so we're lucky to have him giving us an overview of sustainable cities to kick off our episode on cities and climate change this week. Thanks for being here, Stefanos.
3: Thank you very much and good evening to you, Sany.
0: So, the the first question I have to kick off is, can you give our our listeners a little bit of background on what exactly your role with the United Nations is?
3: Yes, Uh, with pleasure. Um, The United Nations, as you probably know, they have their headquarters in New York and uh, in New York it's all the political negotiation is happening. At the same time, there are five of what we call regional commissions which you could imagine as small UNs in each of the geographical regions of the world. So I'm working for the regional commission of the UN for Asia and the Pacific and this commission has uh, seven substantive divisions that are dealing with seven different subjects from macroeconomic development to uh, social development. And I'm leading the division which is uh, working on environment and development. So this division is working on a number of areas including natural resource management, climate change, uh, water resources, sustainable urban and rural development and we have three main areas of work. The one is we support the intergovernmental process, so we support the countries to work together and to find solutions to common environmental problems in the region. The second is that we provide uh, support and advisory services to the countries to institute policies for sustainable development and environmental management. And the third is that we provide also opportunities for capacity building uh, when it comes to the ability to the countries to implement specific measures for environmental management and sustainable development. And my division is uh, overlooking this uh, work and provides support to the member states of ESCAD.
0: Perfect. And and so the theme of this episode is, is significantly around sort of urbanization and cities. Um, and, and urbanization is one of those global trends that affects sort of everything. It affects economic development, social development, environmental concerns. And so uh, one of the things I was hoping that you could share with our listeners is just a sense of the scale of urbanization globally. So so what is happening when we talk about urbanization and the, and the increasing importance of cities globally? Yes.
3: You're absolutely right to say that about urbanization as a mega trend Um, there's not a single u.n study the last three to four years in any uh, kind of um, area economic development environment peace and security that it doesn't highlight the role of cities and the increasing role of urbanization very globally speaking, uh, now more people live in urban areas than in rural areas. And globally, about uh, 50% of the uh, global population is living in cities. If we take into account that in 1950, that was at 30%, so in uh, about 65 years, we had uh, almost a double amount of, uh, of global population living in, living in cities. There is uh, a difference between different regions. So, for example, North America and Europe uh, have the highest degrees of um, urbanization. North America is about 80, 82% and Europe 70 to 73%. And then uh, we have Africa and Asia to being uh, the less urbanized. Um, Asia are about um, 48 to 50% now and Africa at about 40%. But both Africa and Asia, they will become very soon also, uh, very much urbanized. And uh, the projection we have is that by, uh, by 2050, uh, about 70% of the global population will be living in cities, at least. And the figures, uh, for example, for Asia will be 64%. Uh, percent. Now, um, just to wrap up, because when we talk about urbanization, we can just draw numbers forever. Mm-hmm. what is important to understand is that cities are becoming the hubs of development and uh, a big challenge is that many times, especially in the UN system we do have the intergovernmental process where governments will sit national governments will sit together and will decide how to tackle common problems like climate change like environmental degradation but most of the action is happening and will increasingly happening in the cities. So we need to really take account the trends of urbanization and see how we can work more with cities and of course the framework that national governments are agreeing together when it comes to international cooperation. Mm
0: -hmm. And, and so when you talk about sustainable development, um, what are some of the components that, that make up sustainability within a city? So I feel like often we have this global conversation about um, the global environment and global climate change and some and some of these sort of macro issues. Um, and so can you maybe bring, bring it a little bit closer down to earth for some of our listeners on what are some of these components that make up uh, sustainability within a city?
3: Yes. I mean, if we start from, you know, from the, kind of theoretical definition of sustainable development, we have the three big dimensions, the economic, the social, and the environmental. The economic dimension is about uh, development and economic growth. And it's about the need to provide works and uh, income for all people and to address also, and here the social part comes, to address the issue of inequality of growth, So we don't want the kind of growth that it will be only uh, for the few, but it will be for all. And also to address the needs of very specific population groups. And then environmental sustainability, the environmental part of sustainability is about doing more with less. Uh, Having more development but, but using less natural resources. When it comes to the city level, I think we need to talk about uh, the the daily aspects of living in the cities. So when it comes to environment, for example, one very important aspect of sustainability at the city level is the resource use and the resource management. In in UNESCO we use the approach of, it's called Nexus, and we try to say that uh, resources like energy, water, food, and land uh, are actually the, what makes Cities living organizations. So what cities are doing is that they are using these resources and then they do produce uh, economic development. So when we talk about sustainability in the cities is how they use their water, how they use energy, how they manage their waste and um, how they manage the land that they want to produce their foods. And, and bear in mind that a lot of the land that it will be needed to produce food for the cities is not lying within the cities but is lying somewhere else. Another aspect of sustainability in the cities is the individual consumer, the individual citizen, is the behavior of each one of us. Um and it's a behavior that it could be for very simple things, for example, what we will eat today and what kind of products we're gonna buy, up to very important issue when we are not individuals as citizens, but we are individuals as businessmen, as institutions, on what kind of energy we will use, what kind of investments we are going to promote. So I'm, I look at the part, of the, the part of the resources and then the part of the individual responsibilities as two big elements. And the third big element of the, of the cities is the institutional responsibilities. What the mayors, what the city administrations will do in order to provide a better a better environment to the citizens. And when it comes to the institutional arrangements, I think one of the biggest uh, issues today that we have to address at the city level is the air pollution and, and generally issues of pollution that they are affecting the health of the citizens. So environmental health is, a, is another very important aspect of the sustainability at the city level.
0: And and so how does the UN and the UN process, you sort of talked about how the UN tends to convene and work at the, some of the national level issues. And so how does the UN get involved in some of these more micro local sort of city level issues? So you talked about some of the need for um, working on things like air pollution and, and creating the environments through which people can develop. Develop and have the economy and social and environmental components, Um, but maybe walk us through some examples or a case study on on how the UN has been able to sort of influence some of these conversations um, to make cities more sustainable and livable.
3: Yeah, I would say first that we need to make clear that it's impossible for the UN to to work in every um, city in the world, even if we get for example the uh, numbers like the five hundred biggest or the 1,000 biggest cities, we don't have sometimes, and we don't have the capacity, and I'm talking about mostly the financial capacity, to work in our cities. Mm-hmm. So our work is happening in three levels. One is the analytical level, where we try to find out what's happening in the cities, analyze the situation when it comes, for example, to down to the management and the use of resources, and give to the cities globally, um, and, and regionally, some specific messages on where they are when they use water, when they use uh, energy, when they produce waste. So they can start to bear in themselves. Mm-hmm. And the second is, we have what I will call a n- n- number of pilot initiatives. Here in ESCAP, uh, we're working on uh, an initiative that we try to go down at the cities, and we have some pilot cities. We have all, for example, in, in the Philippines, in, in Bangladesh, and we have selected some cities there. We study with the city administrations what exactly happening on sustainability at the city level. And then we try to support the city administrations to do three things. To design better policies uh, for the cities, to design and better investment plans for their cities, because if we want to improve sustainability, we need a new infrastructure. And then third, we, we try to... Support the cities to develop a better capacity on managing the cities in a more sustainable way. Now, this is the pilot work, and we hope that. Uh with the pilot work, we can inspire some change at the city level. Of course we don't have a very big reach, but then we hope that within the framework of international cooperation and uh, south-south cooperation, cities could start to work together. So our hope is that if we work with a couple of cities in the Philippines, then these, uh, these cities could start working with other cities in the Philippines or uh, other countries to, to, to pass these messages. Mm-hmm. And the third area of work of the UN at the city level is um, we participate in some global initiatives where we try to bring the mayors, the city administrations, the voices of, this, of these people within the global initiatives so we make sure that um, the voices of the local people are heard in the global level and they do affect the global agendas.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I think that's important to bring up because you've seen some of the 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 groups that are most adept at responding to climate change and and having sort of tangible on the ground change can often be cities so energy efficiency projects and programs can be really impactful when you get an entire city sort of moving in the right direction. So uh, I think that's some great background. Um, I want to switch gears uh, a little bit um, with our our organization being called Student Energy. We obviously uh, tend to focus and put the student uh, and the energy lens on these sorts of topics. And so what role do you see energy playing in in the conversation around sustainable cities? So we've mentioned economy, environment, and social aspects. Um, but can you maybe walk us through a bit more background on on where the, the importance of energy lies uh, in these conversations around building and developing sustainable cities globally?
3: Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, energy is um, responsible for a big number of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So um, clean energy, renewable energy is one of the main answers to climate change. And if we see the the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, we will say that there's a huge um, focus on the importance of uh, a clean energy mix to mitigate climate change and to achieve environmental sustainability. In the cities, I think that we need to, to see three big aspects of energy. One is energy we need uh, in order to operate our buildings. Um, I don't have, and I don't want to give actually um A global figure but we have done so many studies saying that uh, the buildings could contribute up to 70 or 75 percent of the energy use at the city level so we need to look very carefully how um, buildings are using energy at the city level and this is where we can make a huge change the amount of energy that could be saved with green buildings, with new green appliances in buildings, like uh, a better air conditioning system or a better heating system, it's huge. And it makes a huge um, economic sense also. So uh, focusing on green energy is not only environmentally sustainable, but it's making very good businesses. Transport uh, is another area that I um, the this is using a lot of uh, energy. And, um, and a third area, I would say that it's, it's the service uh, sector and the use of energy and the use of energy of ev- from every one of us uh, as individuals. So I think that if we manage to tackle the problem of energy at the cities, we have done a monumental step on addressing climate change and other Uh, environmental problems. I don't say that it's going to be... enough. I We need to address other sectors, but if we if we deal with energy, I think we will make a huge leap to a more clean and sustainable future.
0: Mm-hmm. And and it's really reassuring to hear the work that you're doing around policy development and good policy development at the city level. Um, I, I don't have the exact stat off the top of my head, but I, I saw a presentation a few months back where they were saying that it's something like 80% of the buildings that will exist in 2050 have already been built and so when when you bring up the fact yes. that the built environment and the buildings that we live in Um, make up such a massive component of our energy system. And and the the framing through which I heard that statistic was really around the fact that if we're not creating good policy and we're not creating um, good building standards and requiring energy efficiency and requiring good building envelopes and sort of making sure that our new buildings are at the highest possible standard, we sort of don't stand a chance at meeting some of these climate targets. Because if buildings are such a massive component of our energy use and we're we're not making those buildings as energy efficient as possible um, then that's a huge missed opportunity because those will exist for 30 or 40 or 50 years into the future
3: correct and actually the figure we are using and it's supported by a study that uh, has been done is that 60 percent of the infrastructure that is needed uh, to support the development by 2050 uh, is to be built. So it probably might be 80% of the buildings, but within about 60% of the global infrastructure that includes anything and not only buildings. So we are talking about a huge amount of energy that will be needed and also a huge increase in the energy consumption over the next 30 to 35 years. Yeah.
0: Um- and so I actually want to go back a little bit to um, a component you mentioned a little bit earlier. We've been talking sort of at the high level about some of the policy aspects and some of the, the statistics around it. You mentioned something earlier around the, the, the concept of lifestyles um, and the role that individuals' lifestyles play in sustainable cities and sustainable consumption. And so I just wanted to, to touch uh, on that a little bit more. So what exactly is meant by the term lifestyles and, and how is that linked to urban development?
3: Okay, we can, I mean, that's something that um, I'm, I'm working the last years and I have trying to see, to find definitions of lifestyles. If you try to look a little bit in the literature or even in the Indian, you find so many different definitions. What I would say to do it very practical and simple, lifestyles, I think a lifestyle is a group of decision patterns that each one of us is adopting so lifestyles is about the way we eat it's about the way we have leisure the way we try to um, uh, build the house or the way we are uh, selecting a place to live it's about the every single decision we take about our, our daily living and the lifestyle actually it's the projection of these decisions in the environment. So when we talk about a sustainable lifestyle, is decisions we can make to reduce our individual environmental and climate footprint. One question that I'm getting many times is that, is it really going down to each one of us as an individual uh, consumer, as an individual citizen? I would say probably yes. But with different rates of responsibility so someone for example that it's belonging to what we will call upper middle class that uh, it has a very huge consumption footprint it has a much bigger responsibility than another person that is living at the limit of poverty. So when we talk about lifestyles we need to talk about something that uh, it's a common principally in the international negotiations, which is what we call common but differentiated responsibility. So all of us as citizens, we have a common responsibility to protect our planet, but then the, this responsibility is differentiated by the degree of, of of the means and the consumption that each one of us has. Uh, and, and to sum up the discussion about the, um, the lifestyles, um, I think that it's a very complex interaction between businesses and people um, and decisions that we do as individual citizens and decisions that uh, corporations and policymakers will, will do for us. And it's sometimes a little bit difficult to attribute that this percentage of sustainability is because of the citizens' decision, this is because of the businesses' decision. But what we need really to understand is that every one of us has a responsibility. And even if we think that uh, there are big responsibilities for other with other people or with other institutions um, i think that we need to highlight this and to say yes i know i'm just probably a small piece of the entire uh, system here but i can do something what we need to make clear is that we will not ask everyone to do the same because as i said we have different levels and different uh, Degrees of uh, responsibility,
0: and and I think there's a really important piece that you bring up as well, just around the fact that it's the projection of action that that, that lifestyles are, are, if you look at what what where people are trending and what sort of direction they're moving in in general. That I think sometimes people struggle with, um, they can't individually solve climate change, but everyone as a collective working as as individuals can do that and so i really like that framing that your lifestyle is a projection out of what your impact will be Um, and i think that's a good lens to give to our youth and and i know you have to take off quickly um, but as sort of a final question i wanted to ask you just your advice that you would give to any of our, our youth or our listeners as far as how they could affect sustainability within their own cities be it through their lifestyle or through other means
3: um, my piece of advice would be to challenge and question every possible thing they are listening about sustainability coming from what we call the business-as-usual way. So I think the biggest contribution of the youth is to bring an innovative way of thinking, to bring some, I would say, intellectual and uh, social leadership to a new development model. And I think that one of the biggest problems is that Uh, as as human beings and as societies we are facing something that is called inertia. We don't want to change the way we are doing things. So the youth should really challenge and question everything. For example, what's the meaning of happiness? Is it happiness about buying more things? Is it happiness about having as many clothes as possible or as many electronic devices as possible? Is it happiness about having a huge luxury car? Or happiness could be sold and could be found on other things that they are not always uh, connected with consumption. So, this is, I think, what you should do challenge and question everything and not take something as granted and try always to put extremely difficult questions in front of the policymakers, in front of the businesses, in front of the institutions that they take decisions for sustainable development.
0: I, I, I just have to commend you. I think you have a, an incredible way of summing up that conversation about quality of life and happiness. And, and I think that our listeners will find that a really inspirational piece uh, around the role that they can play in this transition to a more sustainable energy system. So uh, I, I want to end there and just thank you sincerely for your time and, and your passion that you put into these sorts of subjects. Um, it is recognized and we do appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with us today.
3: Thank you very much and all the best to your
0: audience. Okay. Take Goodbye. care. Take care, Stefano. Once again, we have Kaylee Taylor, Student Energy Co-Founder, interviewing Jason Bell from the City of Calgary, a City of Calgary bicycle engineer.
1: All right, I am really excited about this next segment. Today, we are talking about the life of a bicycle engineer. And I have Jason Bell from the City of Calgary in the studio with me. Hey, Jason, thanks for being here.
4: Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me.
1: No problem. So, what exactly is a bicycle engineer?
4: Good question. So in 2011, the City of Calgary approved a cycling strategy that would help bring more bike lanes and more cycle tracks and more pathways to help people get around the city by bicycle. Uh, One of the action items in that strategy was to create three specific uh, dedicated staff members to the cause to help roll out the uh, program. One of the positions was a cycling engineer who would help take projects from the planning stages down to detailed design, construction, and implementation, with the end goal to provide more infrastructure, specifically on roadways, to help Calgarians get around the city.
1: Cool. And so... What did you study to get into this role? Or or what's that required to to, to have that role?
4: Um, So first and foremost, the cycling engineer had to have a a professional designation in in engineering to sign and stamp uh, drawings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I studied uh, civil engineering uh, at the University of Calgary. And uh, after graduating, I uh, did a little bit of work in uh, the transportation engineering field. Um, and it was around that time when I really started to ask myself some of the big questions in life, uh, looking at uh, the environment and energy. Um, and I really started to look at sustainable, active tra- sustainable and active transportation and um, how I could bring that into my work and my life. And it was at that point where I started to use the bicycle as my primary mode of transportation. So. Um, between my experience as a cycling uh, commuter uh, in all four seasons and my uh, designation in engineering, it made me a good fit for the uh, for the role. So perfect,
1: Flo- flowed right into it.
4: Yeah,
3: <laughs>
1: great. And so, can you tell us a little bit about this major project that the city undertook? Like, how did it start? How has it rolled out? Where is it at now?
4: Yeah, so I'm assuming you're uh you're referring to the uh the downtown cycle track network pilot.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or any of them that you're working on. Okay. Yeah.
4: <laughs> sure. Um so the I guess I can start with a little bit of background about Calgary for those who don't know. Uh Calgary has one of the most extensive uh bicycle path networks in all of North America and even on the world stage. The um, intent of the cycling strategy was really to bring those off-street bicycle paths uh, into the community so people could then go to the grocery store, they could go to work, and um, you know they could go to school on their bicycle. Um, so we're working on projects all over the city to help connect communities um, so people can get around safely um, on their bicycle. One of the major uh, tasks of the cycling strategy was to develop a downtown network of cycle tracks, so separated by um, physical separation that was attractive to all ages and abilities of cycling. So in April, 2014, council approved the pilot project that would bring cycle tracks to the downtown uh, network. And we implemented that in um, um, June of 2015. Um, And that's been going on for about a year now. And it's a pilot project, so right now we're doing sort of monitoring, evaluation. The nice thing about the pilot project is that it's not constructed out of permanent material. So we are able to make tweaks and uh, fixes along the way, uh, mostly from citizen feedback and uh, experiencing the cycle tracks on our own. And then council is going to vote in December whether they want to keep it or to yank it out.
1: Cool. I... I have to say I've lived in Calgary for nine years and I did not realize we had one of the most extensive cycling tracks and the project has been really cool to watch kind of come up. But in the process of this, there's been a lot of uh, media coverage about the project. There's been some very intense emotions, both ways. What do you think it is about kind of these big transportation infrastructure projects that's invokes either these very positive or very negative emotions in people?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, <laughs> Kaylee. Um, I think that change uh, in any form uh, can sometimes be very difficult for us, especially when the, the change is uh, big change, when we're talking about old paradigms. And the way that we've built our transportation networks, typically in North America, have been done in a certain way that they've really been, um, you know, the, the same way for a long time. So this is big change, um, putting in bicycles into the road right away. Um, I can't necessarily speculate where uh, people are coming from and how they're, um, you know, getting emotionally uh, invested in the cycling projects, but I can speak about the some of the, some I guess some of the input and feedback that we've received as part of the public engagement process of this project. On the one hand, the majority of uh, trips in Calgary are done by single op- occupancy vehicle. Hmm. And a lot of Calgarians are asking the question, well, um, why are you dedicating road right away to cyclists where it's just the minority? So they're really frustrated about, about that. Um, but on the other hand, most people are not feeling very comfortable riding their bike in traffic. So when we dedicate space for them, they, they, they feel very positively about that. And that gives them a safe place to get around the city on their bike.
1: Hmm. Cool. And this whole episode that we're doing for Energy Voices is on cities and how sustainable cities come about, um, all different elements, environmental, social. But can you explain a little bit to the listeners in that context, uh, the importance of multimodal transportation in cities and in a sustainable city?
4: Sure. Yeah, multimodal transportation is really taking a look at the the larger transportation network and really providing people with different options so they have different choices based on the nature of the trip that they want to make whether they're going long distances or whether they're going to the corner store or whether they have uh, equipment that they have to haul across with them so they have different choices depending on the different needs of that trip um yeah it's really that simple.
1: Cool. And so from a sustainability point of view that or, or a city point of view, that gives people ways to interact with their city and, and get around it. Absolutely. Cool. And then in terms of, obviously, student energy, we're, we're focused on the energy and sustainability angle. So how do you see cycling playing into that kind of energy system?
4: Yeah, another great question. Um, yeah, so when we're looking at the overall transportation system um, we really have to ask ourselves is this sustainable is this going to be something that um, you know seven generations down the line can use and um, enjoy or is this just something that we're looking at for today Um, cycling is uh, one of the very best and forms of sustainable ways we can get around Um, next to walking it it is the best because the energy that's required is, is very minimal. It doesn't require any sort of, um, you know, fuel, unless we're talking electric bikes. Um, the energy required to build the infrastructure is very minimal compared to um, highways and bridges and, and all that large-scale infrastructure. And then we're also looking at the byproducts of cycling that are um, really amazing, too, because we're not creating any uh, air pollution or noise pollution or anything like that. Um, So it's really a great way to um, bring sustainability into the transportation system because the impacts are just, yeah, (laughs) not there.
1: All that you just said. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Um, This has really, I think, helped to show not only what a bike engineer does, but the importance of cycling in cities. Um, As always, I will be talking to Jason after this and getting some cool links that our listeners can go check out. But thanks so much for being here, and uh, I look forward to seeing what happens with the bike project.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: So it's Sean Collins checking in again from COP21 in Paris. Uh, I'm sitting here with Liz Beardley, who's the Senior Policy Counsel for the U.S. Green Building Council. Uh, And the U.S. Green Building Council has been one of the most influential organizations in changing building standards and really allowing our built environment to be much more sustainable. So uh, we're going to pick Liz's brain about some of the projects uh, that the Green Building Council has worked on and some of the upcoming initiatives that they have, as well as the opportunities they have to engage youth. So, Liz, to kick us off, can you give us a bit of context? So, who is the Green Building Council and what have some of your flagship projects and programs been?
5: Thank you so much. The U.S. Green Building Council is a nonprofit organization. We have the mission of transforming the built environment to be more sustainable for people and the planet. And we have been doing that largely through our flagship rate, green building rating system known as LEED. That stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And this, um, this has been around now for, I think, almost 20 years and has enabled um, pe- designers and building professionals to target uh, strategies to make their buildings more sustainable in terms of energy use, water use, um, increasingly, we we'll look at embodied carbon. We look at waste throughout the life cycle, from construction and demolition debris, through um, waste on site, and um, materials, and also indoor environmental quality and site sustainability.
0: And and what was the reason that the lead program was necessary? So maybe a bit of background on on how a program that is now so sort of globally scaled, how did it start in the first place and what was sort of the inspiration behind it?
5: So yeah, I think a lot of organizations and people were interested in doing more with buildings, but there was not a way to sort of coalesce and focus this effort. And so people got together and decided to put forth this green building rating system, and it really grew through two different means. One is um, the commercial real estate market in the United States was really looking for a way to make this distinction and to be able to recognize excellence in sustainability. And so by providing a way to certify and and provide third-party verification, then um, owners and tenants could know what they were getting, and this really um, fit a gap in what was available at the time, and it really took off. And at the same time, uh, the federal government and some state governments were also really interested in becoming more sustainable in their own operations and building portfolios, and so they began to adopt LEED for their own buildings as a way to meet their own goals there, and have continued to do so.
0: And, and so what sort of geographic scale and global scale or impact have you guys achieved so far? So uh, how wide-reaching is the LEED standard now?
5: So LEED is now in 150 countries, and we are certifying about 1.85 million square feet uh, a day. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, sorry. Nope. 1.85 million square feet per day.
0: And, and so what's next for, for the Green Building Council? So, so the LEED program is something that has achieved some pretty incredible global scale uh, and impact. And so how do you follow up on this? Um, are there any changes coming to the LEED program? Or sort of for anyone that's interested in these, the, the sustainability aspect of the built environment, um, what are things that they should be aware of on the horizon?
5: So one thing we're really excited about is we we know that buildings are critical. They are in the U.S., for example, seventy percent of retail electricity and forty percent of total energy. I think the forty percent is figure is is true around the globe. Um, but going beyond that, we are really interested in the building energy system interface, and then what in sort of bringing this same kind of. Um, leadership mark to the electric systems. So we have, um, we're now working with a system called Peer, P-E-E-R, and that system does for the electric grid what Lead does for buildings. So it looks at improving the quality, an experience of the electric grid, and to help. Um, owners make decisions and prioritize investment to be more sustainable.
0: And so one of the things that we talk about often at Student Energy is allowing youth to participate and engage in subjects and and programs that have a significant can have a significant difference and so when you bring up the fact that 40 percent of electricity usage comes from buildings that's obviously a massive opportunity to have some efficiency improvements and changes and so for for some of our student members that are interested in subjects like buildings and the built environment and energy efficiency um, are there any programs that exist uh, that the green building council produces that youth can engage with
5: Yes, so we have, um, first of all, our website, which is the main website is usgbc.org, and has links to many free resources. So the rating systems are free to look at, and there's many articles. So anything from a a 30-second read to a deeper dive is available there. And then on our education platform, Uh, There's a mix of types of classes and courses, including an increasing number of online um, courses about buildings and electricity. There's an introduction to peer that might be of interest, and some of these are now becoming available in a number of non-English languages as well.
0: Perfect. And if you were uh, a student starting their first year of university, what aspect of the building or energy efficiency space would you be most interested in looking at, looking forward to the next 20 years?
5: That's a great question. I think you have to find your own passion just to be open to where things are going and know that they are not going to be, you know, the thing that you might learn in class this year. Is really it's learning how to think and how to think big and make connections between, um, you know, your engineering world, the architects, um, the planners, and, and think about building occupants. Maybe that is the one frontier that's getting a lot of tension right now. Is how do we better enable people? We're actually trying to call them inhabitants of buildings, not occupants, because occupants implies we're just you know, um, not actually engaged with the building but we should be and we need to you know turn things off when they're not in use or have them turn off and that's that's a big part of the load so we can do a lot more with that engagement and it's it's pretty exciting
0: perfect well we appreciate you taking the time to give us a bit of background and best of luck on your future programs.
5: thank you so much for having me
0: That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai St. Clair, with production assistance from Janika Chavez, Kaylee Taylor, and Kabir Nadkarni. You can listen to previous episodes of Energy Voices at energy energyvoices or by searching for Energy Voices in your favorite podcast service. Remember to subscribe so that all future episodes are downloaded automatically to your phone or mobile.